This is They Create Worlds, Episode 32, The History of the Atari Brand. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Say hello. Today, we will delve into a new mystery. Well, a mystery for some. The history of the Atari brand. That's right, because there is no brand in video game history that has gone through such a convoluted series of ownership changes as the Atari brand. I think most people that have more than a passing interest in video game history know that today's Atari, uh, because there is still an Atari, really has nothing to do with the Atari that was founded back in the 1970s. But there are certainly plenty of more casual history people and and people that that just don't follow the history of all that kind of still think that, oh, that's the same Atari that was around back in the day. It must be. It's got the same logo and everything. And it's like, no, not even close. Yeah, it had so many hands that it changed between. And we covered a little bit of this through a bunch of different episodes. We've talked a little bit about Atari Arcade, Atari Games, Atari this, Atari that, Nolan Bushnell. We touched a little bit on all of it, but really what we want to focus on with this episode is to bring all these little bits and pieces together and bring it together as a complete narrative of what happened. How did it start? Where did it go to? Who are these crazy people in France who own it now? (laughs) That's right. So I guess, really, Alex? To start this sucker off, how did we form Atari 1.0? Sure. Well, of course, Atari starts with two people, those two people being Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. Nolan Bushnell, as we've discussed before, he was the guy that had the idea that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we took this space war thing that all the college kids are raving about and brought it to the people generally, perhaps through some sort of arcade game? Ted Dabney was the older, more experienced engineer that had some of the engineering skills that Bushnell himself lacked that could help bring this kind of to fruition. And in the very beginning, there was even a third person that didn't make it all the way through to the formal founding of Atari, and that being Larry Bryan, the computer programmer that they enlisted, because initially they figured that what they would be doing is taking a mini-computer and sticking it in an arcade cabinet and building an interface between the computer and an ordinary television set, and then running the game, the Space War game, as a computer program on that Nova, and then time-sharing that Nova so that multiple copies of that game would be running at the same time, because that's the only way to make it economically feasible, because uh, a Nova, even though it was far cheaper than the computers that had come before it, was still $4,000 in its basic configuration and $8,000 in its more expanded configuration. So one quarter at a time just isn't going to pay that back fast enough. Now, you interviewed Larry, didn't you? I did not, but a colleague, Marty Goldberg, uh, who co-wrote the Big Atari History book, he did interview Larry Bryan, and he actually shared that interview with me. So I've listened to that interview. That is, as far as I know, the only 
historical interview of Larry Bryan that's ever been done. Yes. All right. So we have the three of them coming together to try and recreate Space War. I think we talked a little bit about that when we talked about Space War. Absolutely. At this point, they knew that they were going to be creating a partnership together. We're talking here 1970, probably about the summer of 1970, maybe the spring. Exact dates of that kind of thing are a little difficult in hindsight when there aren't documents and whatnot to back it up. But we're talking probably about the summer of 1970 here when this is all coming together. They decide to name the company Syzygy. And the reason that they choose this name is that's actually a real word, as strange as it sounds. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. And it refers to the alignment of three bodies in a solar system, like when three planets align, you know, that, all that astrology kind of thing. That would be a syzygy. Larry Bryan was vaguely familiar with the word, and he knew that it referred to the alignment of three things. He wasn't exactly sure about all the heavenly body stuff, but he knew it somehow referred to three things. And he reasoned, there are three of us, syzygy. Yeah, makes sense. And so that's, that's the biggest thing Larry Bryan contributed to the project, is he actually came up with that name. And the reason for that is that they found out very quickly that they would not be able to timeshare Anova to do four to six games. Anova was powerful enough to run Space War. It was not powerful enough to run four or six Space Wars. So it's just a single-purpose game, and you can't run three, four, five. You have the proper economy of scale in order to make the entire project viable. Right. There's just not enough memory. There's not enough processor uh, time. It's just... It's a mini computer, and it's a pretty small mini computer. It's it's perfect for certain one-on-one things, but it's not really meant to be time-shared amongst many, many people. That's that's what you use a mainframe for, is to time-share amongst many people. And that costs a lot more. Well, yeah. <laughs> Especially then. Well, yeah. I mean, you're, you can be talking seven figures for a full-on mainframe. So Larry Bryan wasn't around very long. So Syzygy was essentially Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. And so they kind of formed this partnership in the middle of 1970, but it wasn't formalized until kind of the end of the year, December 1970, January 1971. That's when they actually kind of figured out how much of the company people own or whatever. Mm -hmm. It was basically, I think at that point, probably a 50-50 partnership. I'm not sure. Could have been a 60-40. But they put together this Syzygy company. And this was the vehicle through which they were going to build their arcade game, which was computer space. Of course, they weren't going to manufacture themselves. They went and found Nutting Associates to do the actual manufacturing. They're just a couple of engineers. They can't get a whole factory together. But that's the beginning of Syzygy, kind of informally founded in summer 1970, formally founded uh, around the end of 1970, beginning of 1971. So fast forwarding, computer space comes out. It's does all right. It doesn't set the world on fire, but it's not a complete flop either. Nutting is interested in continuing the product line because it does well enough that it's worth extending the product. So Computer Space is a one-player game. Space War, the original, is a two-player game, two spaceships dueling each other. There wasn't enough processing power in the hardware that they came up with to do that, so it was just one player and two computer-controlled, well, to hardware-controlled, I should say, flying saucers. Because it's not, I mean, a state machine is kind of a computer, but we're not talking about something that has a CPU, and we're certainly not talking about something that has software. It's not a general-purpose machine, and it's not software-defined anything. Exactly. So it's more accurate to call them hardware-controlled opponents, I think. 
Or solid state opponents. Mm-hmm. Sure. They're going to continue the line, and they're actually going to create a two-player version at this point. Nolan's kind of okay with that, but he's like, you know, if I'm going to keep working with you guys, because he wasn't too impressed with their knowledge on the coin-op industry, he basically said, if I'm going to continue working with you guys, I need to have a large stake in the company. He wanted a third of the company, according to what he said in interviews. And Nutting was like, well, I'll give you 5%. And Bushnell was like, eh, bye-bye. So at that point, Bushnell decided to step back and focus on that Syzygy partnership that he has with Ted Dabney and continue as a design firm that's going to design arcade games and then license them to other arcade companies, just like they licensed Computer Space to Nutting. So they still have the rights to their Computer Space hardware and everything. The Computer Space game itself resides at Nutting, but the technology, the underlying technology, is his technology. He's free to take that and do whatever he wants with it someplace else. So at that point, they moved to actually incorporate, to form a corporation. And they planned to incorporate as Syzygy. That was the name of the company. Turned out that the name, at least so the story goes, was already in use. Really? Right. It's The story changes. There have been some sources where I said it was a roofing company. Other sources where I said it was a candle company. If you go into the California Corporation's database, because they actually have all of that stuff online, I can't remember. I think there is some kind of Syzygy company that was vaguely in the same time period, but it doesn't necessarily look like it's something that would have conflicted. Right. Such a different thing. You got video games versus roofing, lighting, candles. Right. Generally speaking, you can have the same name as another company so long as you're not in a similar business, which is why Apple Computers and Apple, the company that controls the Beatles catalog, have been at odds with each other for decades Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're both very high profile Apple companies, but they're both allowed to be Apple because they're in very different fields. And that's why we have different names. They like to differentiate themselves. So you have Apple computers, even though they dropped the computers part of it recently. Right. And you have Apple, I guess, music for lack of a better term. I think it's just Apple Corporation or Apple Incorporated. I don't think there's a Right, but you can sort of think of it as like Apple Music and Apple Computers. Mm -hmm. Sure, that's fair. So for whatever the reason, whether that story is fully true or if it's being partially misremembered, the fact of the matter is they had to come up with another name. And so they submitted three names, which you give some options, all taken from Go, because Nolan Bushnell was a fanatical Go player at that time, the Japanese strategy game. Atari was one of those three terms. I'm not a Go player, and I don't speak Japanese, but my understanding is essentially what an Atari is, is it's a board state where one of your pieces is considered to be in Atari if it is going to be captured by your opponent's piece unless you move it to an adjacent space. So it's very similar to the concept of check in the game of chess, though obviously check just refers to a single piece in chess, the king, whereas there are no special pieces in Go, they're all just stones. So it it can refer to any piece, but that's what it means to be in Atari. And apparently that phrase is sometimes, it's not considered, my understanding is it's not considered polite to say Atari in the way that you say check in a chess match. So dedicated high-level players don't scream Atari at each other, but my understanding is sometimes uh, a lower-level player or something, if they put a piece in Jeopardy, might even even call out Atari in the same way that when you put a king in check, you say 
check. So that that's where the Atari term comes from, and that's the term that ended up being the uh, the name of the company. A lot of people just assume that Syzygy became Atari. That's true from a layman's perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's close enough that there's nothing wrong with saying that. Technically, from a legal perspective, what happened is Atari was a separate corporation that was founded. And then Atari purchased Syzygy hmm. in return for the issuance of Atari shares to Syzygy Partners. That, that's the technical corporate thing that happened. For all intents and purposes, Syzygy became Atari. It's just if you get down to the technical. So I guess from a legal standpoint, they did it that way so that they right. could retain all of the rights, properties, control. And, and Well, and it, it allowed them to kind of divvy up the company. I think, I think at this point, it was something like Nolan Bushnell took 60% of the company, Ted Dabney took 30% of the company, and Al Alcorn who was hired to be uh, an additional game engineer and who created Pong, was given 10% of the company. And so they created Atari Incorporated. But they continued to often do business in the first year as Syzygy. They really liked that name. They actually used the name on Computer Space. On the control panel of Computer Space, obviously the Nutting Associates label is on there and everything. But they also included the phrase Syzygy Engineered on that. That was kind of their way of saying, here's this other company that really came up with this. You may have Nutting Associates actually producing this and marketing it and all that stuff, but the brainchild behind the software is Syzygy. Right. And so they used that Syzygy name actually quite a bit in the first year or so of the company. In some articles and trade publications, you see them referring to Syzygy as the development company and Atari as the manufacturing company. Hmm. I don't think that's strictly true from a legal standpoint. Syzygy company didn't exist anymore, but they liked having this dichotomy. And, you know, I asked Nolan about this because I have interviewed Nolan, and he basically said at that point they had a track record. And so people knew that Syzygy was out there. According to him, how widespread that knowledge was, I don't know. But the basic idea is they didn't want to lose that connection as being the guys that created computer space. And by maintaining that Syzygy name, they could maintain that sense of connection. So it's almost like Syzygy was a subsidiary of Atari that they could use the name for. And say- well, what they did is is doing business as that's that's a term. You know, a company will be officially incorporated as one name, and then there'll be DBA, another name, doing business as another name, which means that we do business under this name, but it's not technically the name we're incorporated under. So they were, they were Atari DBA Syzygy. Almost like Google and Alphabet. <laughs> sure. Alphabet and, doing business as Google. Something like that. Though, in truth, they used the Atari name a lot, too. Mm-hmm. They didn't strictly use the Syzygy name, but they didn't want to lose touch with that. So Atari Incorporated was founded at the very end of June 1972. That's when it was incorporated. This is the company that did all the classic stuff in the, in the bronze and the golden age of arcade games. This is the company that created Pong and created Breakout and developed the VCS and all of that good stuff. The Syzygy name actually fell out in 1973 because what happened is... Nolan Bushnell kind of pushed Ted Dabney out of the company Mm -hmm. and bought his shares back from him. 
and Atari was going through some difficulty at the time that that was going on. So Atari bought Dabney out of his shares and in return for a promissory note. In other words, they took all of his shares up front, but they didn't pay for all of his shares up front. They went into debt. They gave him a note, and then there were supposed to be installments paid on that note until the company had paid off everything that was owed to Ted Dabney. But Atari was going through a very difficult period at this time. Atari actually almost went out of business, quite frankly, in, in 1974. It got pretty bad. So they were having trouble making payments on the note, and so they came back and said, okay, we know we're behind on payments, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to sell you the, well, not sell you, we're going to give you the company's coin route. When they left Nutting Associates, they actually purchased a route of arcade games from the Nutting people. What's a route of an arcade game? As we've talked about before, there's a three-tier distribution system in the arcade. You have manufacturers that make games, that sell them to distributors, that sell them to operators. Mm -hmm. Operators put games on location. And an operator will have games in many different places. Most operators will have games in many different locations, different bars, different bowling alleys, maybe an arcade or two, etc. And so all of the locations that they have games in are their coin route. Okay. These are all the places that they collect the money from, that they service the games on, etc. So Syzygy slash Atari actually had a coin route that they purchased from the, some of the Nutting Associates guys when they broke with nutting. And so they had like something like 50 games on location oh, in nice. different bars and whatnot. It was just a small extra source of income to keep them going while they were figuring other stuff out, essentially. What Atari did is Atari said, okay, we're, we're behind on the note. What we're going to do is we're going to give you the coin route, which has some value. We're going to give you the Syzygy name. They actually gave him the Syzygy name to use on the coin route. And then we're going to replace the note you have now with another note that is for less money. So basically, they're saying, take our games as part of the debt we owe you, and then we'll continue paying down the rest of our debt on this new note. Okay, so you get these games, you get this name, you get a few other little things, and we get to pay you less money. Right. Now, according to Ted Dabney, they actually made him lease the games themselves. They gave him the route. But they didn't give him the games. He actually had to lease the games themselves that were on the route from Atari, oh, according to, to Ted. But still, they, they gave him the route, and he ran that as the Syzygy Game Company. So that's when the Syzygy name becomes divorced from Atari. And, and there really is only one name at that point. There's just Atari. And so they start focusing solely on that Atari Incorporated name because they've gotten rid of the Syzygy name. As it turns out, Atari, which is still in financial trouble, has trouble paying off that note, too. And Ted kind of gets disillusioned with the whole idea of running this coin route besides. So he wants Atari to take the games back, kind of in forgiveness of the note. And Atari refuses to do it. Atari is the company. But Nolan Bushnell agrees to do it personally. So Nolan Bushnell personally assumes that. And then he sells it on to the Atari controller, Ted Olson. Ted Olson then ends up founding an arcade chain out of that coin route. They, they don't use the Syzygy. He doesn't use the Syzygy name. But that, that's kind of where Syzygy kind of goes off in the crazy after that. But we're focused on Atari. Okay. After they get rid of the Syzygy name in 73, there is only one name now. That's Atari Incorporated. Atari Incorporated is the company that releases all this classic stuff, as we discussed. In 1976, 
Atari becomes a subsidiary of Warner Communications. They got bought out by Warner Communications, as we talked about before. That's right. They basically needed more financing to bring the VCS to market because that was a very expensive proposition. And they explored going public, but it wasn't a particularly good time for the markets. So they decided against going public. So then they looked for a company that they could sell to, and they ended up selling to Warner. From 1976, end of 1976, last quarter of 76, Atari is a subsidiary of Warner Communications. And Warner Communications is a public company. So in that sense, Atari essentially goes public. Now, it's not a publicly traded subsidiary of Warner. The only stock that's being traded is Warner stock. But Atari now has to report its revenues and its losses and all of that stuff as part of the larger Warner Communications empire. And Warner Communications is set up kind of weirdly. It was created by Steve Ross, and it was created, it was a true conglomerate. It was created by sticking a bunch of disparate things together. It actually started as like a cleaning services and parking company. And he wanted to get into the entertainment business, so he bought a talent agency, and then he bought the Warner Brothers studio that was going through a a bad period. And so after he had Warner Brothers, he changed the name of his company to Warner Communications because that Warner Brothers and Motion Picture Studio and their Warner Music record subsidiary were kind of the most valuable things he had at that point. And a very recognizable name to this day. Exactly. There's still, you know, it was Time Warner, then it was AOL Time Warner, and then they got rid of AOL, and it has its own convoluted corporate history, which has nothing to do with video games, really. But certainly an entertaining one. Absolutely. So Atari is now a subsidiary of Warner Communications. And Warner is set up very weirdly, like I said. Steve Ross is the chairman. He's the guy that the buck stops with. But rather than having one CEO or president of the company, he actually has an office of the president composed of three or four people. It varies from time to time. And each member of this office of the president has specific Warner businesses that they are responsible for. Okay. And then those Warner businesses often have their own head as well. So I think we've talked before, I'm pretty sure, about Atari's dual management structure during this period. Mm-hmm. Because you had Manny Gerard, who was Office of the President of Warner Communications, and Atari was his responsibility. So he oversaw Atari on behalf of the parent company. Right, and there was this communication problem between mm-hmm. Atari, the levels of vice presidents and presidents going all the way up, and so... What edicts were coming down were not necessarily being communicated down, and communication going back up were not going all the way back up, and right, because, it led to unhappy people. Right, because then Atari had its own chairman and its own president. Nolan Bushnell was chairman, and Joe Keenan was, at this point, the president. And so they were running Atari, but then they also had to answer to Manny, who was kind of also running Atari on the Warner side, but not the day-to-day. I mean, the day-to-day was truly with the managers at Atari, but the Warner guy still has a say. You can't just ignore your office of the president representative either. In fact, Nolan finds out that you can't just ignore that because Nolan had very different ideas about how to do the business of Atari than Warner did. And... That tension comes to a head at a budget meeting in November 1978. Basically, they fire Nolan because of those those disagreements. Nolan likes to say that, you know, maybe they fired me, maybe I quit, I don't know, nobody was happy. And I'm sure that on one level he wasn't happy either, and maybe he would have been willing to quit, but 
Marty Goldberg, who I talked about before, they have a lot of corporate documents, and they have the letter where Warner fired him. Okay. So, so definitely... he was unequivocally fired. Okay. He was, he was removed from the company. And Joe Keenan very briefly replaced him as chairman, though he left the company very soon after as well. And so the power at the Atari level was concentrated in Ray Kassar, who we've discussed before. Mm-hmm. So now you've got this dual management structure with Ray and Manny, and it's just a mess because Ray likes playing his vice presidents off against each other. That comes from interviews with his actual vice presidents. <laughs> That's where mm-hmm. I get that from. And my understanding as well from talking to multiple people in the company is that there was also a lot of politics between Manny and Ray, where basically if you said something to Ray, you had to make sure you also said it to Manny and vice versa, because otherwise there'd be these gotcha games. <laughs> because yeah. There are spies for both, and there. I mean, it's it's not like there's an outright power struggle for the company. It's nothing like that. It's just that everybody's got a stake, and everybody's keeping an eye on their investments. So that's it's very much like office space, where you have five managers. You have to tell everyone if you make a mistake, six of them come to visit you. <laughs> right, exactly. And you can't take your frustration off on a uh, fax machine or a printer. It's really corporate. And the other problem is it's growing so quickly because Atari takes off like a rocket. That's after the VCS launches. That's right. Well, after, after Space Invaders launches for the VCS. Okay. So that's the one that really makes it skyrocket. Yeah. I mean, we won't go into VCS history right now because we have so much to cover. But the first couple of years of the VCS are just kind of middling. And then after Space Invaders is released forward in 1980, that's when it takes off like a rocket. You're not going to talk about VCS, and it's over there lording over you. I'm sorry, VCS. For those who can't <laughs> see this, because this is a podcast, <laughs> I actually have the Atari up here in the recording yeah. studio, and it's on top of the television, taller than us. But no, I have not played my Atari today. I'm sorry. Aw. <laughs> so, it takes off like a rocket. For a brief period of time, it, it holds the record for the fastest-growing company in American history. That is, that its revenues in one year are so much larger, you know, such a percentage larger than the revenues the year before. I mean, it, it, goes, it goes to a billion. It goes to two billion. And it goes even higher than the, than the public numbers show because Warner, during this time period, the record business wasn't doing as well. The movie business wasn't doing as well. So they actually, using, you know, perfectly legal, but still kind of tricky accounting practices, they actually had ways of shuttling some of the money from Atari into some of the other subsidiaries that weren't doing as well. So even the publicly reported figures on how much money Atari made are actually low based on what Atari actually made. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it became the vast majority, well, not the vast majority, but it, it became responsible for, I forget the exact percentage, but something like 40% or something of all of Warner's profit. Which or, is insane yeah, for no. a video game company, yeah. for a major corporation. Right, because they had, they had their fingers in everything, and they had big movie studios, big book publishing companies, big uh, record companies. Yeah, you and, would think the movies, the book, and the record company, at least, would outshine a video game company that is so small, so new, so young. Yeah. It, it, was, it was the tail wagging the dog, is what it was. There is some linkage there. I mean, nobody's really studied this in much detail, but... Part of the reason video games were doing so well is because things like the record industry weren't doing as well, because kids only have a certain amount of money that they can spend on all their entertainment activities. So Mm. if kids are buying video games, they have 
lots and lots of video games, they don't have as much money to spend on records, for instance. You know, there's a finite pool of consumer spending. And they're not spending that money going on dates in order to go to movies. and Yeah. I mean, remember, we, we talked about this before. At the height, arcade games were taking in $8 billion. And the movie industry was taking in something like $4 billion. I mean, it's for this one brief period of time, video games were really what all the kids were doing, like to the exclusion of everything else. I mean, today, something like 90% of American kids play video games. So kids are doing video games today as well, but they also do other things. It's like in this period, they were just, they were like just doing video games. I mean, right. It's crazy. Yep. So Atari gets really big, really fast. The management gets all messed up and there's a lot of communication problems there's all of this mess that we've gone into some of it before. We'll probably, in our big crash episode, we may go into some more of it later. We, we won't get there. But the point is, for the purposes of this topic, that Atari has the meteoric rise and the calamitous fall very quickly. Because of the crash. Right. They lose $500 million. Right. And especially <laughs> when you're going from having a multi- a couple billion dollars worth of profits and you're 40% of a company and then you're going from being 40% of the company's income to being a liability of 500 million. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a problem. And Warner very nearly gets taken over during this time period by a gentleman named Rupert Murdoch, who I think we're all familiar with. Nah. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch makes an aggressive effort to take over Warner Communications because the Atari problem is killing the Warner stock. And so the Warner stock is getting so cheap that Rupert Murdoch decides to try a, a hostile takeover of Warner. And he is unsuccessful in doing this. But that really gave the impetus for Steve Ross to sell the company. He couldn't wait for Atari to turn around because it's too much of a liability if you have it dragging the rest of the company down so badly that you have people you really don't like trying to take you over. You, you got to cut something loose in order to stay afloat. Right. So Atari had to go or more specifically, and this is the important part, the home console and home computer divisions of Atari had to go. Not the arcade division. Right, because the arcade division is doing all right. We have talked about how there was a downturn in the arcade market at around the same time, and there was. But by 1984, skipping ahead now, the arcade market is already bottomed out, and Atari's arcade operation is not really doing all that terribly because it's, it's much smaller. Right, and as we said before, it was a severe correction for the arcade industry, not a crash like it was for the home computer and video game industries. Exactly. Consoles. And the, the arcade division was always a more modest part of the total revenues, so it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what was dragging the company down. It was all that console and computer stuff that was dragging the company down. So they had to get rid of those divisions. And this is where we actually have the first true split of Atari, where we have Atari something and Atari something else. And that's where we have this division of Atari arcade and Atari computer and consoles. That's right. And so what happens is they end up selling that home computer and that console division to Jack Trammell, the founder of Commodore. 
Jack Trammell, of course, is the, the businessman who famously said business is war. He's the businessman who started that ruinous price war in home computers that we've talked about in previous episodes. And he's also the person that turned Commodore International into a billion-dollar company on the back of that Commodore 64. But Jack had his own problems in his company. And I can't remember if we talked about some of this before or not. But basically, it was a Canadian company for a while, back in the 60s and 50s. And it was caught up in a major, major, the biggest I don't know if it still is, but at least at one time, the biggest financial scandal in Canadian history, the Atlantic Acceptance Scandal. And that stuff's way too complicated for me. I'm not an economist. I'm not going to get in the details of what that was. But the important thing is, is because of that situation that they were caught up in, Commodore very nearly went out of business and it had to be rescued. And it was rescued by a guy named Irving Gould, who bought a majority share of the company in order to keep it solvent. So Jack Trammell was the founder of the company. He founded it with another guy, but the other guy wasn't there anymore. Well, he left at this time period is what I should say. Jack Trammell was the founder of the company and he was the CEO of the company, but he no longer had control of the company. The majority of the stock was owned by Irving Gould. And this created a very tense relationship because Irving Gould did not really care about product. He did not care about computers. He did not care about anything except maintaining his very, very lavish lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I think we did talk yeah, a little bit I about this. Yeah, I think we did. He wanted the stock to run. That's all he cared about. As long as the stock was going up, 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 that's all he cared about. He didn't want to spend any money on anything. And so he would never give Jack enough money. Now, Jack was, we've talked about before, he didn't believe in doing a lot of marketing, and he didn't believe in giving people lots of money either. But he did believe in having enough money to at least get his product out there. And oftentimes it was a struggle to get Irving Gould to give him the money he needed to do that. Mm -hmm. And they had lots of conflicts over all sorts of things. Finally, it just reached the breaking point where they couldn't work with each other anymore. And, and Jack left. He, he resigned. He walked away from his own company that he built from, from nothing. I mean, it's, it's kind of sad, really. Right. At first, he thought he was going to retire. He really honestly thought he was going to retire. He and his wife started Around the World Cruise. About halfway through that cruise, he realized he couldn't do it. He couldn't retire. He needed to be back in it. And what he really wanted to do was protect the American computer industry from the Japanese. Because the Japanese, he thought, were coming. And they probably were. There was the MSX standard that was created in Japan. It was a partnership between a bunch of companies, ASCII, Sony, Yamaha, several others, to create this kind of universal computer standard, similar to how VHS became a universal video cassette standard. Mm -hmm. And the fear was that once MSX became established in Japan, they were going to release it in the United States, and they were going to undercut the American computer manufacturers and, and do the same thing they did in all the other industries. I know we've hit on that point before, too. They took us out in steel. They took us out in automobiles. They took us out in consumer electronics semiconductor memory, and it. now they were going to come for computers. And so Jack Trammell felt that he needed to be the bulwark against the Japanese. And so he called off the world trip, he called off the retirement, and he founded a new company, Trammell Technology Limited. This creates constant headaches trying to keep it right on Wikipedia. He actually deliberately misspelled the name Trammell. You see, his name is Trammell. 
mm-hmm. but it's a Polish name. It's spelled T-R-A-M-I-E-L. And so when an American sees that, they think it's Tremiel. Mm. But it's pronounced Tremel. And so he actually called his company, he named his company after himself, but he called it Tremel, T-R-A-M-E-L, Tremel Technologies Limited, so people would pronounce it correctly. I guess that makes sense. So every so often on Wikipedia, someone will come along and try to change the name of it to <laughs> reflect his actual name. And then you have to change it back and be like, no, it's, that's right. He misspelled his own name deliberately because he figured it was more important that they say it right than spell it right. <laughs> so he founds Tremel Technology Limited and he gets started. He brings in some Commodore people. There's still a lot of loyalists. And he has these Commodore people start work on a new computer, his new, his newest low-cost computer that's going to help be this bulwark against the Japanese coming in and taking over everything. He knows he needs more than, than that, and he starts looking for existing technologies out there, existing whatever he can buy to kind of bulk up his Tremel Technology Limited. And, and that's where this... Atari computers and consoles come in. Right. And he wasn't actually looking at Atari. Warner called him. Really? He didn't call Atari. Warner called him. At first, Warner had been actually hoping to sell to Philips, Hmm. the Dutch electronics giant. And they put a lot of effort into negotiating with Philips to buy the company. But Philips was interested in a partnership with Warner, maybe doing some kind of joint ownership, 50-50 or something. They were not interested in buying it outright. So after talking with Phillips for a long time and not getting anywhere, they turned around and they called Jack Trammell. What made them think to call him, especially with a new company? Well, I think that's exactly why, because Jack Trammell was an established name in the industry that had just founded a new company, and they probably figured that he could use the boost, that he's someone that might take the whole thing off their hands. Okay, take all the IP technology, whole shebang. And they they were right, because he did. They had an intense negotiation. I think they, they, they negotiated over the 4th of July weekend, and you know by the end of that weekend in 1984, they had a deal in place. Now, again, this dual management thing, they never bothered to tell Atari that they were doing this. Oh. By this point, Ray Kassar has been fired, and a tobacco executive from Philip Morris named James Morgan is now the CEO of the company. The first that James Morgan learns of the pending sale of Atari to Jack Trammell is when he is called in to sign the paperwork selling Atari to Jack Trammell. That's certainly a blow out of left field. <laughs> Nobody knew this was going on at Atari. Literally no one. And there's a lot of confusion about what happened next. Uh, confusion in the history. Jack Trammell did not buy a company. Mm-hmm. Jack Trammell bought assets of a company. He bought the assets of the console division, and he bought the assets of the home computer division. He did not buy the divisions themselves, which means he did not buy the people in the divisions. Kind of the common narrative that usually gets out there is that Jack Trammell bought the companies and then fired nearly everybody. Which isn't the case. That's not technically true. Now, a lot of people lost their jobs, but it was actually Warner issuing the pink slips because rather than Trammell keeping the people he wanted and firing everybody else, what he was doing was hiring only the people that he wanted in his company. And it's more like what happened is Warner Communications goes and sells the assets and liquidates the company 
without telling the people and then goes the next day going, okay, you're all fired and we're closing down these divisions. Right. That, that's pretty much what happened. And then Jack did hire some of those people. He met with everybody in those divisions and decided who he wanted to keep on. And who he wanted to keep on were mostly the people that he thought could help his home computer get built. Right. And at that point, you've got a smaller company. He doesn't need to have huge, two new big divisions brought in. Right. He just wants to cherry pick the people that he knows will help make his business work. And he has all of these assets and people who understand these assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like he bought the divisions and fired them. That, that makes sense. He got... Right. Pretty much Time Warner, for lack of better terminology, screwed over the Atari people in both those divisions. That's exactly correct. So what he did is then he reincorporated Tramel Technology Limited as Atari Corporation. Because part of those assets had the name? He had the name for the console and computer markets. Mm-hmm. It was a complicated split. He also had the home rights to any arcade game that Atari had created prior to the split. But he was not buying the arcade division, so he didn't have arcade rights to anything. And he didn't have rights to any Atari arcade products going forward because he wasn't involved in all of that. But yeah, he, he could use the name in the home, but he couldn't use it in the arcade. And the Atari that remained could use the name Atari in the arcade, but couldn't use it in the home. It was a mess, and they had to do a lot of sorting out to try to figure out who exactly owned what. It, it took some... I imagine. It, it took some lawyers to finally untangle all of that, because they didn't sell him the company. They didn't sell him all the assets. They kept the arcade division. There was a, a phone division creating some kind of video phone or something called Atari Tell that was eventually shut down, but Warner kept that. So they kept a few parts of Atari. And they kept the company Atari. They didn't eliminate the company Atari. It's just that these two divisions, they kind of thrust on to Jack. And Jack basically did it all in, in debt. He, he bought it basically. He, he, he spent very little cash on it. It was almost all debentures. He didn't have to put any cash in up front, hardly any cash in up front. And so he got some of these assets and he hired on some of these people and he got to work kind of finishing his computer. The other misconception that people have is that Jack Trammell had no interest in the console business. That he was only interested in the computers. The computers were definitely his primary focus, but he was very interested in using the console product as a way to finance his home computer activities. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, because he noticed from the Commodore 64, Commodore 64, by and large, for many people, especially for, say, me and many home users, was more a game console than a computer. Unquestionably. The reason that people think that he was not interested in the video games is Atari had been in the process of releasing a new console when he took over the company, the Atari 7800. It had received a limited test market in early 1984. They didn't get around to doing a general release on it. Jack didn't release the Atari 7800 until after the Nintendo test market. He didn't release it until 1986, when it became clear that video games were coming back. So the narrative that people formed without having all the facts was, well, Jack was clearly not interested in video games because he 
canceled the release of the 7800, and the only reason he released it was Nintendo got so big that, or looked like it was going to get so big that he figured he might as well release it. But this is actually more of the ridiculously complicated interplay between all of these entities. The Atari 7800 was not created by Atari. It was created by an outside company called General Computer Corporation, formed by a group of MIT students. These same people did Ms. Pac-Man. They're the people that did Ms. Pac-Man. And they wanted to do a console, so they did a console. They made a deal with Warner for the mm. console. You see, they didn't make a deal with Atari. They Again made a with deal Warner. with Warner. Again, the cluster with Warner. Exactly. So the 7800 didn't come with the Atari purchase because it was owned by Warner. Mm. And so they had a big dispute because, you see, GCC hadn't been paid for all of their work yet. So Jack said, well, this is a deal between Warner and GCC. So Warner is the one that has to pay GCC for the work on the console. Mm -hmm. And Warner was like, okay, that's great, fine, but we're not going to pay them. If you actually want to ever release this console, you're going to have to pay them. Hmm. <laughs> so it was lost in limbo for over a year because GCC was owed money. Nobody could release it until GCC got paid for their work. And Warner said that Jack needed to do it, and Jack said that Warner needed to do it. And he so nobody was getting said. paid. Right. And finally, Jack ended up having to do it but the, because he wanted to release the system. But the point is, the reason they did not release the system was not because Jack didn't want to release the system. Mm -hmm. The reason was it was not a product that he actually owned the full rights to. Right. And, and also, it explained why the 7800 was so different than anything else. You had effectively a completely different company making it and putting all the electronics in and designing it and all that. And that's why you have the interesting dial pad and sure other and insanity. This is a bit of a tangent, but this goes into my belief on Atari not really being interested in video games long-term with Ray Kassar being more interested in the home computer. Because, see, Manny Gerard was interested only in the video games. He's given interviews. That's the stuff he understood. The fact that GCC made the deal with Warner, I think, had to do with kind of an internal struggle between the two of them where Kassar saw the future in computers and Gerard saw the future in video games. And I could be wrong. Again, I don't have proof of this, but I have to wonder if this is another example of that, that it was Warner that was really pushing the release of this video game system. Mm-hmm. And Kassar was more interested in, in the home computers. Not that he was going to get Atari out of the video game business. I mean, not even close. Right. It's just that I don't think that that's where his priority was. They finally do release it in 1986 because they finally get that rights issue sorted out. Atari Corporation. The original is Atari Inc. This mm -hmm. is Atari Corp. Okay. And that makes a difference. Because Atari Incorporated, a.k.a. Atari Arcade, and then you have Atari Corporation, a.k.a. Atari Consoles and Computers. Computers. Right. And so Atari Corporation releases the 7800. They release the ST Computer. They later release the Jaguar console. That's Jack Trammell's Atari. As we discussed in the Namco episode not too long ago, the coin-op portion of the company, which is renamed Atari Games, becomes a 
Namco subsidiary after Warner turns around and sells 60% of the company to Namco. They keep a 40% stake. They don't give up their stake, and they keep a stake in Atari Corporation as well. Mm -hmm. They're kind of hedging their bets and figuring that if video games ever come back in a big way, they could get back in the business. It's just that because they have so many threats to their existence, like that hostile takeover attempt, they cannot wait for video games to come back. They have to get that away now so that their stock doesn't keep tanking. But they can at least divorce themselves enough that they can keep a foot in the pool, so to speak, mm -hmm. and sort of feel out the waters, understand what's going on, but not be completely divorced where they have to rebuild everything from scratch. Right. So Atari Games, the arcade company, becomes a subsidiary of Namco very briefly for like a year or so, and then becomes an independent company. But only independent because nobody has a majority in it anymore. As we discussed, what happens is that 20% of the Namco share is bought by Atari Games management. And so it becomes 40% Namco, 40% Warner, 20% independent, which means it's independent because there's no majority shareholder. Mm -hmm. So that's Atari Games, and they're the company that makes all the arcade games in the late 80s. And they're the company that, when they do get involved in the home market, has to choose a different name. They can't be Atari in the home, because Atari Corporation has the rights to the Atari name in the home. But they've gotten so big, they want to bring some of this software into the home. Right, because they not only have their own software, but they also have the Namco stuff. Because even after they're no longer part of Namco, even after they're independent, they have all the rights to the Namco stuff in America. They create a subsidiary called Tengen in order to enter the home because they can't use the Atari name. And if you may recall in your Nintendos, you may find little Tengen games scattered all about. Yes, I, always, I was always fascinated by Tengen because they were always in the catalogs, like in the back of comic books or whatever. They were always in a separate section. And that made them feel kind of mysterious. And of course, they were in a separate section because of the fact that they... Uh, we're not exactly on good terms with Nintendo due to the whole, due to the whole reverse engineering the NES thing that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. But Tengen is another name from Go. That's why they chose it. Tengen is the center of the Go board. That area is called Tengen. So that, that's the connection. It's Even still though Nolan Bushnell's gone and he was the primary source of Go naming, right. they just decided... Yeah, well, they the wanted, yeah, they wanted to keep the theme going because they're still Atari, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Now you have Atari Games and you have Atari Corporation. And these two companies coexist through the late 80s and into the early 90s. And that's when we get a whole nother round of craziness going on. We'll talk about Atari Games first. Okay. Atari Games functions as an independent company until uh, partway through the 1990s. And then what happens is video games get really big again. And not only do video games get really big again, but the onset of multimedia and the concept of interactive movies, et cetera, et cetera. Think missed. Right. Gets all of the Hollywood studios and whatnot interested in this whole video game thing. And you get what's kind of called the Sillywood era. It's a combination of Silicon Valley and Hollywood. 
which but it's also clever because it it was very very silly. Mhm. So this is kind of the Sillywood era of games which is maybe worth its own podcast actually sometime. I think there's probably enough you can say about Sillywood to to make it its own podcast. Well, so, I certainly don't know much about it. So won't go into detail, but the point is all of the media companies are founding their own game divisions again. Universal Studios, 20th Century Fox, MGM, Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Warner wants back in now. Yep. And so Warner forms Time Warner Interactive, an interactive division. And so Time Warner has this interactive division now, but they've also upped their ownership in Atari games because basically in 1990, Namco decides to get more involved in the American arcade again on its own. It doesn't want to be going through Atari games anymore. So it sells its stake in the company. Atari Mm. Games buys it back. So now they have an 80% control. Exactly. So now Time Warner has roughly, I think it's about 78%. But yeah, they have 80%, almost 80% of the company now. So it becomes, again, a subsidiary of Warner Communications, which at this point is a subsidiary of Time Warner. Because by this time, Time and Warner Communications have merged to form Time Warner. So Time Warner has. Uh, a majority control in Atari. Eventually, what they do in 1994 is they fully integrate Atari games into Time Warner Interactive. Hmm. So the arcade subsidiary and this Sillywood Interactive Movie, et cetera, et cetera, company come together and become one company, which is Time Warner Interactive. So at this point, they maintain the Atari games name in the arcade. Mm-hmm. Because Atari is already such an established name in the arcade that they don't want to get rid of that name. Tengen goes away at this point. Tengen becomes Time Warner Interactive California. Because Time Warner Interactive is already involved in the console space, and Tengen hasn't exactly uh, acquitted itself well in the console space in the sense that it's completely and thoroughly pissed off Nintendo <laughs> to no mm-hmm. end. So that's the end of... Of Tengen, which becomes Time Warner Interactive California. Though it's still based in Milpitas, the same place where Atari Games is. So it's, you know. It's just names. It's a cosmetic. Yeah, it's a cosmetic thing. It's just names. So now you have Atari Games going from an independent company to becoming a mostly owned subsidiary of Time Warner to becoming an integrated part of Time Warner Interactive, becoming a subsidiary of Time Warner Interactive. So that's kind of what's going on there. And the whole Sillywood thing doesn't work out for anybody. And that includes Time Warner. None of those movie companies that get involved in the industry at that point really have much success in it overall. Most of them pull way back after getting into it. When it turns out that interactive movies aren't going to be the next great thing, and it it takes more than writing a script to create a computer game or a mm-hmm. video game. The Time Warner Interactive stuff isn't going well. By the middle of the 1990s, the arcade stuff isn't really going well either. Time Warner decides they want to get out of all of it. They want to get out of the arcade thing. They want to get out of the console thing. They just want to get out of all of it. So they sell Time Warner Interactive to Midway. And Midway being the pinball company. 
Well, Midway isn't really a pinball company. Midway has its own complicated history that is <laughs> terrifying. Midway was a company founded in 1958 by two veteran coin-op guys, Hank Ross and Iggy Wolverton. In 1969, they sold to Bally and became a subsidiary of Bally. Okay. They essentially became the video game arm of Bally as time went on. All of the video games that were released by Bally were released through Midway, including Space Invaders and Galaxian and Pac-Man and all the games that did very well in the Golden Age. Eventually, Bally merged their pinball division into Midway as well, which kind of then started being called Bally Midway. So they had the pinball stuff too, but Midway never made pinball back in the day because by the time they were founded in 1958, the pinball market was already very well sewn up by the companies that were already there. Bally Midway continued as a subsidiary of the Bally Corporation until it was sold to Williams in 1988. Williams being another long-time pinball company that was founded back in the 40s and had gone on and on and so on created Defender in the Golden Age. By this time, Williams had actually become a holding company called WMS Industries because they were getting involved in other stuff. They were starting to get involved in casino operation. They wanted to get involved in slot machines. So they were doing all of this kind of stuff. They continued to release pinball tables under both the Williams and the Bally names. They would alternate them. Yeah. But it was all just WMS Industries, the holding company. They started releasing their video games under the Midway name. Because the Midway name had such recognition through Space Invaders and Pac-Man and all of that mm -hmm. way back in the day. So, like, Mortal Kombat is a Midway game, which really means it's a Williams game. <laughs> but they own Midway now. All of these companies and their crazy combinations. Why? Why? WMS Industries, the holding company, eventually decided that they wanted to get out of the video game business because they were getting more involved in slots and casinos and all of that stuff. So they spun out Midway, and this Midway is incorporating video game stuff that was both Midway and Williams, plus the home stuff that they've been doing, which is a whole other set of companies they bought, and we won't go there. That became Midway, which became an independent company, it was spun out in 96, became fully independent in 98. Midway ends up purchasing Atari games. From Time Warner Communication. That's right. Wouldn't in that case they have bought Time Warner Interactive as opposed to Atari Games? Because Atari Games is part of Time Warner Interactive. No, what they, what they purchased was Atari Games, which existed as a subsidiary of Time Warner Interactive. Okay. They weren't interested in all of that nonsense. They just wanted Atari Games. Okay, and so they ripped that out of the where it got shoved into the big corporate structure. Exactly. It was actually WMS Industries that did that, the holding company of Williams. They did that in early 1996, right before they spun out Midway into Midway Interactive. Okay. Williams owns Midway and owns Atari Games, but then Williams wants to get out of the arcade and focus more on their stuff like casinos and slots. And so they consolidate all of their different video game and whatnot subsidiaries into this company Midway Interactive and spin that out into its own company in 96 and then becomes fully independent in 98. And that's Midway. And now Atari Games is a subsidiary of Midway 
the Atari game's name continues. Mm-hmm. But it's part of Midway now. And which no- isn't even Midway. It's really Williams, but they call it Midway. Because that's a more recognizable name. Exactly. The company that was founded as Midway in 1958 really has very little to do with the company that is now called Midway in 1998. Mm-hmm. But corporate reasons. <laughs> corporate shenanigans. <laughs> exactly. So now you have Midway. And Atari Games is a subsidiary of Midway. And they stay in Milpitas and they keep doing their own thing. Eventually, they have to give up the Atari name, though. And the reason for that is what's going on on the other side of the thing with Atari Corporation. Okay. So now we have to go back to Atari Corporation. Okay, so we went over a brief history of the arcade side of things and how it divorced itself from Time Warner and became part of Midway and it's off doing its thing. Now we must figure out what happened to the computer and console side. Right. So Atari Corporation got itself into a bit of trouble pretty quickly. The Atari ST was kind of well-received at first. Uh, It was called the Jackintosh because it was kind of Macintosh-like, but cheaper, as Jack Trammell is liable to do. Mm -hmm. And it it got a little bit of momentum, but it ends up being overshadowed in a lot of ways by the Commodore Amiga. Plus, the home computer concept basically just dies in the United States in the mid-'80s after the ruinous price wars. The Atari ST and the Amiga do some business in Europe, and the Atari ST does pretty well in Europe, but again, the ST ends up being overtaken by the Amiga in Europe, too. So the ST's not doing that great, and at the end of the day, they basically have to start making PC clones like everybody else. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they're having real trouble with distribution, because Jack has a way of really pissing off retailers. See, when he had the Commodore 64, he decided he wanted to move computers from specialized computer stores into mass market merchandisers like Kmart. So he gave a nice deal to mass merchandise stores like Kmart to stock the system. Because he gave them a nicer deal on his end, they could sell it for cheaper on their end. Mm-hmm. So without giving any warning to his computer retailers that he did business with, that the market was suddenly about to be flooded with cheaper computers. They get a surprise one morning when they go, why is no one buying my computers anymore? That's right. Why are they all going to Kmart? Right. Let's look at Kmart. Why are they selling the exact same product I have for a hundred bucks less? Now, logically speaking, if you're going to get into mass market retailers, they're going to undercut computer stores. But the important thing is, is that he didn't give any of his existing customers a chance to clear out some of their inventory before suddenly uh, unleashing this flood of cheaper Commodore 64s through mainstream mass market retailers. Right. He, he didn't give a professional, courteous detail of, hey, this is coming down the pipeline, giving you a heads up, you might want to not buy so many. Right, and so that basically ended any loyalty that computer stores would ever have towards Jack Trammell. So when it came time for the Atari ST, by this time the price wars had destroyed the home computer market, so stores like Kmart weren't interested, (laughs) you know. So he had to sell through the computer stores and electronic stores, you know, Circuit City or whatnot. And they weren't interested in doing business with him anymore. Nope. 
uh, to a large degree. So he had a lot of trouble getting distribution for the ST. So he decided that he would buy his own distribution. He bought an electronics chain called Federated. Turned out after he bought it that Federated wasn't doing nearly as well as he had been led to believe. I mean, he knew they were kind of in trouble. That's why they were for sale. But he didn't know they were quite in that much trouble. Mm. And so the purchase of Federated really drove things down as well. And they weren't making any headway in the video game market with the 7800 against the Nintendo juggernaut. The ST was being overshadowed by the Amiga. And there wasn't much of a home computer market in the United States anyway. No money for you. They got into some difficulty and they did start making PC clones. And they started focusing more and more on video games, trying to... They kind of figured they couldn't make it so well anymore in the computer market, I think, because their special specialty computers weren't selling and their clones weren't going to get the same traction as the clones from companies like Compaq or Packard Bell or Dell, some of these companies that are doing really well in the clone market. Jack Trammell actually mostly retires in 1988 and hands over the company to his son, Sam. He remains chairman of the board, but Sam becomes the president. And Sam refocuses the company on the video game industry. That's when they do the Jaguar. But that doesn't work very well for them either. The Jaguar is pretty much a failure. They're kind of in bad shape. They don't have any product that they can do anything with. But they have money. They have a lot of money because they actually launched a lawsuit against Sega over some scrolling patents. Mm-hmm. And they won that lawsuit, and they got some nice cash out of Sega for that settlement. They have no product, but they have cash. So that makes them very palatable to a company that already has product, but is struggling in terms of their cash flow. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is there's a hard drive company called JTS. Okay. And they're not doing well, and they need money. They're not interested in video games. They're not interested in computers, full computers. It's just they need cash. And Atari Corporation now has cash. Mm-hmm. Basically what happens is around this time, Sam Trammell suffers a heart attack. Uh, he, he lives. He's still alive today. But he suffers a serious heart attack, probably from all the stress. I and mean, the Jaguar is doing so bad, they, they try doing infomercials. They try selling the Jaguar through infomercials. Oh, dear. It's And I think the stress of it all just finally gets to him, and he has a massive heart attack. And so he steps down as president of the company, and Jack comes back in, basically just, essentially just to wrap things up. He becomes CEO again. And so he makes this a deal with JTS in 1996, where JTS purchases Atari Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they nominally keep it going for a small period of time you know, providing service and support to existing customers. Mm -hmm. But that's basically the end of Atari Corporation in 1996. The hard drive company has no interest whatsoever, and it's pretty much just going to liquidate everything. Well, they don't liquidate everything. They keep a hold of it, but they're just not interested in continuing it. They were just in it for the cash. However, that Atari property is still very valuable, and there are still other companies that are interested in that Atari property. And one of those companies is Hasbro Interactive. Mm -hmm. As the name implies, Hasbro Interactive is the computer gaming interactive division of Hasbro, the toy company. G.I. Joe, Mr. Potato Head, Nerf, all that. All those classics we should remember as kids. That's right. And all the board games, because they've bought Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley. You know, it's, it's funny. I don't know if they're still branded this way, but, you know, when we were teenagers or whatever, if you went into a store and... 
you know, you saw all the board games and there were Parker Brothers board games and there were Milton Bradley board games. Those were actually all Hasbro board games. They they just kept those individual marks because they were so well known. But they bought uh And the illusion of competition. Right. They bought Milton Bradley in nineteen eighty four and they bought Kenner Parker <laughs> in the nineties. So they they owned all of that. Anyway, Hasbro Interactive is the interactive division because they want to get involved in this burgeoning computer game market. They grow fairly rapidly. They have a couple of early successes and they're growing. They absorb other companies. They buy Microprose, for instance. They have a big hit with Frogger, mm-hmm. the, the classic arcade game. They release a version of it for consoles that, uh, not, not a version of it, but they release a game in the IP. They license the IP and release a game in, in the series for consoles, and it does really well. So they're interested in doing some more with this whole classic arcade game, not reboot, but update mm-hmm. kind of concept. So Atari is a, is a logical source for this. So they go to JTS and they say, we'd like to license some of the Atari properties from you. JTS is a company that's still hurting. They're still struggling. Mm-hmm. So JTS is like, why license when you can just buy it all? <laughs> and Hasbro Interactive's like, okay, I'll do that. So in 1999, Hasbro buys kind of the, the entire Atari catalog. So they get control of the Atari computer and home gaming suite. Exactly. All of that stuff that had gone to Tramel and Atari Corporation and then went to JTS is now part of Hasbro Interactive. And it's important to still point out at this point there are two Ataris still. That's right. So in 1998, I said 1999 a second ago, but it was actually 1998, Hasbro Interactive controls all the Atari assets that were controlled previously by this JTS corporation. Mm-hmm. And they establish technically a, a separate subsidiary, HIAC, to kind of administer the Atari properties as a part of Hasbro Interactive. And they start releasing old Atari properties like Centipede and Missile Command and all of these kind of classics in various retro gaming collections. They start cashing in on that Atari property. Didn't they also during this time make sort of like remakes of it? Because I remember around the late 90s, my sister may actually still have this, sort of like a revamped version of Pong where Mm -hmm. the basic Pong version, but then they started doing all these little twists on it. and Yeah, exactly. 3D and crazy. Yeah, they were doing stuff like that as well. Absolutely they were. And they were releasing a lot of the stuff under the Atari label because they have the logo, they have the name, they have the properties. And they can release it in the home. That's right. Unfortunately, Hasbro Interactive is not doing very well. Oh. Basically, they have a couple of early successes. And because they have a couple of games that do really well, they kind of overdo it. They grow too big too fast, and they can't maintain that same level of success as they grow into this bigger company. And so they hit a period of financial difficulty. What with it with, is Atari like sort of the, uh, with the NFL and the football game, whoever's on that cover is suffered. Oh, a Madden curse. Yeah, the Madden curse. (laughs) Is is Atari sort of like the, you buy our properties, your company is cursed and it's going to go down in flames and financial difficulties? (laughs) I guess there, there is some of that. I think, 
I think, you know, if, if you want to boil it down, it's just, I guess Atari is one of those properties that's coveted enough that it takes a fair amount of money to purchase. So you have to be a company that's, that's kind of expanding and, and on the upswing. And, and then it turns out that all these companies that keep buying it are companies that are expanding too rapidly. And so have bit off more than they can chew. It's not just Atari, obviously, but it's, <laughs> that's part of what's going on. Hasbro Interactive's not doing well, and so Hasbro wants to get out of that business because it's dragging down the company. Mm-hmm. Just like Time Warner before. And that's when the French enter the picture. The French. Through a company called Infogram. We won't go through Infogram's entire history, but basically it was founded in the early 80s by a guy named Bruno Bonnell, and uh, a couple of other guys were involved as well, but he's the important one for this story. They slowly became kind of the largest publisher in France by acquiring companies as the 1980s went on. They had a lot of hits with licensed comic properties. And by comic publisher, books. you mean you're talking books and comics then? No, 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 no. A computer game company. They're a computer game company. Okay. They, uh, they had a lot of success with comic book IPs, European comic books IPs. They did 1010 games. They did asterisk games, North and South, which was based on another comic. Uh, was a game they had success with. And then they really got big in 1992 with Alone in the Dark, mm -hmm. the prototypical survival horror game. After that, they started going on a massive spending spree. It was kind of the beginning of the dot-com era. We're talking mid-90s. Alone in the Dark came out in 1992, but we're talking a little later from that. There was a lot of money being pushed into the bourse, the main French stock exchange. Mm -hmm. tech companies, including computer companies, computer game companies, were really being heavily invested in and were worth a lot more on paper than was probably appropriate based on their actual output. And so you find several French companies in this period, not just Infogram, suddenly going on big spending sprees to acquire U.S. and British computer game and video game companies mm -hmm. because they suddenly have lots and lots of money because of what's going on in the stock exchange. So Infogram starts buying up all sorts of companies. They start with smaller companies like Gremlin, which is a British development house. They move up to Ocean Software, which is one of the larger British companies, which still makes it small compared to most of the U.S. companies. But it's a pretty big deal, a pretty big international company. Then they buy GT Interactive, which is a much bigger company than they are. GT released Doom 2 in retail. They had a couple of other kind of bigger games. They released Unreal, I think, in retail. And so Infogram bought them, a really big company. And they bought Accolade as well, which was smaller, but still had had a couple of hits. So they're buying all of these. British and American companies and expanding very rapidly. And they kind of cap all of this by purchasing Hasbro Interactive, hmm. which gives them the Atari properties. Yep. So once again, you have this upstart company, just like Hasbro Interactive was, coming in and buying all this, except they are buying on a much larger scale than Hasbro Interactive ever did. They are now huge. They are one, now one of the biggest publishers in the business. Mm -hmm. When you put together Ocean and Accolade and GT and Hasbro Interactive, that's a heck of a lot of properties. But they've expanded too quickly. They don't really have the capability. They don't really have the product to back this up. 
And now, you know, this is 1999 that we're talking about that they make this purchase. And now the tech bubble is getting ready to burst. The dot-com mm-hmm. era is just about to end. They've quite simply bitten off more than they can chew. They can't afford all of what they have. And so Infogrom goes through a long, long downward spiral. And we won't get into that. That's really its own separate podcast to talk about the, the rise and fall of Infogrom. But the important thing is, is they, over the course of the next decade, they go through multiple CEOs, they go through multiple product strategies, and they can never turn it around. But one thing that they decide to do very early on is take advantage of that Atari name, mm-hmm. which is far better known than Infogrom in the United States. Mm-hmm. So to review the Infogrom situation, because this gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. Infogrom is a French company. This is Infogrom SA. Mm-hmm. SA, I'm not sure exactly what it stands for in French, but that's, that's the equivalent of putting incorporated after a company name in the United States. Infogrom SA purchases GT Interactive in 1999, and GT Interactive becomes Infogrom Incorporated. Okay. Then in 2001, they purchase Hasbro Interactive. This becomes another subsidiary, Infocom Interactive Incorporated. Mm-hmm. In 2003, the company decides that because the Atari name is so well known in the United States, that they will change the name of all of their American subsidiaries and European, actually, subsidiaries as well, to the Atari name. Hmm. But the company Infogrom in France remains Infogrom. Infogrom Incorporated, the former GT, becomes Atari Incorporated. Mm-hmm. And Infogrom Interactive, the former Hasbro Interactive, becomes Atari Interactive. Okay, so they make... Two new subsidiaries. No, no, no. They changed the name. Okay. This isn't making new subsidiaries. They changed the name. Infogrom Inc. becomes Atari Inc. Mm-hmm. Infogrom Interactive becomes Atari Interactive. Okay. The parent company of these companies remains Infogrom SA. Okay. In 2009, as their situation continues to deteriorate, they decide to rename Infogrom SA to Atari SA. Okay, so now we have three Ataris based off of the same section. Well, yeah, it's just that they're changing the names of all the, the subsidiaries. I mean, it's no different than Nintendo having Nintendo of America and Nintendo Europe. I mean, lots of companies have subsidiaries. It just... It's just that they started by only changing their subsidiaries to the name Atari. And now you have the parent company also becoming Atari. Right. So in 2009, you get Atari SA, which still has some of these other subsidiaries as well. But that's the end of the Infogrom name. Mm -hmm. The Atari that exists today, which is a continuation of this company, it's changed hands a couple more times and downsized and laid people off and shed studios and all of this nonsense. But the Atari that exists today is Atari SA a French company Mm -hmm. that has the rights to most of the Atari properties. They've sold a few of them off over the years, but they have rights to most of the Atari properties. But they are a French company whose only connection 
to Atari, the original Atari, is that they bought, they the bought a company that had the rights to the properties that they bought from another company that had merged with a previous company that had bought the assets of two divisions of Atari in 1984. You said you'd come back to this, but what happened to the Midway Atari? Right. I'm, that's exactly where we're going. So <laughs> once Hasbro had the rights to all the Atari stuff, mm-hmm. and then after them, they did not like the idea of another Atari existing. Mm. And so they basically told Midway, you've got to stop using the Atari name. You know, they probably they may have had a leg to stand on in court on that, but they weren't going to bother taking on Hasbro. It didn't mean that much to them. Mm-hmm. So in 1999, in order to not piss off Hasbro, essentially, mm-hmm. they just they don't bother fighting it and they just change the name of their Atari game subsidiary to Midway Games West. Because Midway is based in Chicago. Atari Games is based in California. So the California Atari Games becomes Midway Games West because it's west of Chicago. Okay. So that's the end of the Atari name. But they still have the arcade properties. Right. They still have the arcade properties and they, and they still do... Well, Midway doesn't exist anymore, but they still did up to the end of Midway. But... The studio continued to exist as well. The company continued to exist. It was just called Midway Games West now. And that persisted until 2003, when they finally closed that studio, because Midway is going through all sorts of difficulties, and Midway does not exist anymore. They finally disintegrated in the last console generation. And I mean literally disintegrated. They were sold off piecemeal Mm -hmm. (laughs) to other companies that were interested in their properties and studios. 2003 is really the year that Atari died. You know, the coin-op people always considered themselves to be the real Atari because Atari started as a coin-op company. That Mm -hmm. was their business. The console and home computer stuff came later. And then in the Warner sale, they weren't selling pieces of the company, divisions of the company. They were just selling the assets. So they were basically just shedding that extra stuff that they had picked up along the way. And the coin-op company had great continuity of personnel. There are people that worked at Atari Games for 20, 30 years. I mean, a lot of the engineers that were creating the hits of the early 1980s were still working with the company in the late 1990s. A lot of the management, the president, Dave Van Eldren, started like in 1973 as a tech on the line and and rose to be president of the company. I mean, this is a company that had lots of continuity of personnel and lots of continuity in corporate history. They considered themselves the real Atari. They persisted all through this. They were bought out by Namco. They became independent. They were bought out by Warner. They were bought out by Midway. Well, WMS and then spun out with Midway. And then finally in 2003... They were laid to rest. That's when Midway Games West closed. And that was the end of the last company that you could really trace back to the actual Atari founded in 1972. Today we have Atari SA, but they really don't make games anymore. They mostly just license their property for other ventures. And 
it's not really Atari. It's it's become a name now. It's no longer the company that that founded video games. It feels like Atari should have been the Walt Disney Company of video games, just because they played such a key role in in starting the whole ball rolling, just like Walt Disney did in terms of feature animation. But now all we have is a French company that is just using a name that it bought from a company that bought it from a company that that bought it from a company. Uh, who ended up with the arcade rights since they closed down the West Studio? I'm pretty sure they're scattered now. I'm not positive about that, but Midway disintegrated. I mean, Midway kept the rights because mm-hmm. they were just shutting down a studio. The company still existed. But then Midway went defunct, and all of their stuff just got scattered to the wind. So whatever was left as far as Atari properties and IP got scattered to whoever wanted to buy it. Well, the arcade company. The arcade company, right. The stuff that was post-1984. Right. Right. The French company, Atari SA, still owns the majority of the rights to the Atari properties, though, like I said, a few things got sold off piecemeal at at various points. The French company still owns the majority of the stuff, especially for the home and the computer, but not necessarily for the arcade. Well, they still have, they have rights to a lot of the pre-1984 arcade stuff now as well. I don't... Okay. Yeah. But a lot of the post-1984 arcade stuff is is a little bit scattered now because of the death of Midway. Pretty convoluted and hard to follow a little bit. Yeah. Certainly crazy. It is. I mean, it's... And that's why a lot of people just kind of assume they see that Atari name and the Atari logo, and it's like, oh, that's the company that released all those video games back in the day. And the answer is, well, no, not really. (laughs) No, no. Yeah. Shame to see such a company have such a promotious history. Yeah, I mean, I say that it should have been the Walt Disney of video games on on one level, but on another level, that was just never going to happen because Walt Disney Company became the Walt Disney Company because there was that one singular individual, Walt Disney, that was very talented as a cartoonist and an animator and was also a very talented businessman. Atari never had that. Nolan Bushnell had the vision to see that this whole video game thing was going to happen. But he didn't have the management capability to see it through. And he didn't really have the creative chops to see most of it through, too. His, his main contribution was enthusiasm and vision. And he had vision. The Atari of the mid-1970s had a very good manager in Joe Keenan, and it had some good game developers as well. But none of them really had the capability to build that into something huge without outside help. Mm-hmm. And so they went to Warner. They were bought by Warner. At that point, you had a succession of people in charge of the company that some of them had good business sense, some of them didn't. But there was no creative spark up there. It was mostly mm-hmm. just business spark. And while the company was doing creative things, there was just no one with the vision to meld creative and business in such a way to just keep driving it forward. They they screwed up in their estimation of where the market was going. At that point, they just didn't have a chance. It's You needed Nolan Bushnell's vision combined with Walt Disney or uh, Steve Jobs' kind of business sense combined with some really great game creators. And, and Atari never had that. You just never had the perfect management team to turn it into an entertainment juggernaut. Do you think there's 
ever been someone in the video game industry that exemplifies that? No, I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think anyone's quite got there. There hasn't been a Steve Jobs or a Walt Disney or even a Henry Ford who wasn't a creative person but was so brilliant business-wise that, that it didn't matter. I mean, you have someone like Trip Hawkins with Electronic Arts who may come closest to combining those qualities mm-hmm. of, of everyone that's been involved in the business so far. Certainly he understood, he had the vision and he had decent business sense, good business sense, even though he wasn't personally necessarily the creative talent, he understood how to bring creative people together when he formed Electronic Arts. But even he, in the end, messed it up because he really thought that he could create a new hardware standard, the 3DO. And so he started putting his energies into that. And then, you know, he lost his position of power and influence in the industry. EA didn't, but Trip Hawkins personally did. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the problem with the video game industry. Maybe it just changes so rapidly that it's almost impossible to find a person that can stay on top of that change for a really extended period of time. With Moore's Law driving everything forward every 18 months, maybe you keep up with the first 18 month cycle and the second 18 month cycle and the third and even the fourth and the fifth, but then. One of them takes you down. Yeah, then it overwhelms you. And that's probably part of the reason why you haven't seen that. Though it's not like Apple and Microsoft weren't affected by Moore's Law, too. Obviously, things kept changing in those areas, and Microsoft had to figure out how to go from being a language company to being an operating system company to being an internet company, internet provider company, to being a cloud services company. So... They've made that jump time and time again to remain relevant, or Apple going from a computer company to a music distribution company and to a mobile company, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's it's certainly been done in tech, but... Just not in a video game But industry. just not in games. So maybe someone will come along at some point and, and really shake things up, and, and maybe not. It's, it's hard to tell. It's just, it is such a volatile industry. Still relatively young. I mean, I think you mentioned before that it's very analogous to the uh, movie industry. And for intents and purposes, we're in the quote-unquote 1930s of the movie industry as far as video games go. Sure, because video game industry is a little over 40 years old, and movie industry really started in the 1890s. They weren't showing them on screens then. It was mutoscopes and kinetoscopes and you know, peep shows, but really it starts in the 1890s. So if you go 40 years from the 1890s, that's the 1930s. So, right, that's that's where it is. And, you know, it was, it was the 1940s, really, that film started breaking away from vaudevillian and theater conventions with movies like Citizen Kane. So it's not necessarily going to be a one-to-one analogy, but Maybe that means that we're still a decade or two out from the moment where video games really find their own unique narrative space and break away from the storytelling techniques of previous media and find their own place. I mean, we really still are 
at the very beginning of this industry, and that's really something we, we can't forget. Kind of hard to believe, even though we've talked about so much and have so much more to talk about, and the industry is, as you said, 40 years old. That's right. Well, that pretty much covers everything from here. Where are we going to delve into the next episode? Well, I think it's about time we revisited a company that we've already discussed a little bit in the past, uh, which is Sega Enterprises. And the reason for that is there's a new book out, a very excellent book, by the way, called Playing at the Next Level by Ken Horowitz, who runs Sega 16, which is the most authoritative source on the internet for information on the Genesis era at Sega. And he's written this book, Playing at the Next Level, that kind of discusses the history of Sega of America from its inception in 1986 until Sega got out of the hardware business at the beginning of the 2000s. It's not going to be a book review. It's not going to be covering the same exact material that he covers. He's very focused on how the individual games got developed. But I figure since Sega of America is kind of in the news, so to speak, right now, that it would make sense to continue our journey through Sega that we started way, way back in the early days of the podcast and kind of examine what was happening with Sega a little bit more in the 80s and into the 90s. Alrighty. And if you want to uh, go over what we've already discussed, the episode is Sega, The Untold Story. And as Alex said, way, way back in episode five. (laughs) So if you listen to that, sorry for the poor audio quality. But if you want to catch up, certainly uh, check that episode out. And we will continue the saga of Sega next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.